This is the Bible Bitches Podcast, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist comedic perspective, y'all. And I'm here with the one Sarah E. Hoff, an agnostic based in California. Indeed I am. And I am here with Laura Barclay. She's a Baptist minister. She lives in Louisville, Kentucky. And truthfully, she's pretty fucking badass. As are you, my dear. (laughs) I was fishing for that, so thank you. (laughs) Um, And today we're doing another two-parter. This time, though, it's about Easter, which is very exciting. Um, So I think you guys all know by now we're probably not going to be focusing on bunnies and eggs. So I don't know that they know that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, audience, I'm so sorry. We're not going to be talking about bunnies and eggs. That's just, I mean, like maybe, maybe for a different time, just maybe for a different time. But uh, we're going to be focusing on the death of Jesus, Uh, specifically like, why did he die? What was going on around his death? Who was involved? Obviously, Laura. Basically, we're getting... (laughs) Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, we're getting in there like a tabloid at a royal wedding Um, and So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a few different theological answers to the question of like, why did Jesus die and was it necessary? Um, Just because of my agnosticism, I don't think it was necessary. And I think it's super problematic in in the church as a narrative overall. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, I say, no, I'm good without it. (laughs) I like that. I like that. I think that, nah. <laughs> Not my bag. <laughs> um, and I'm going to argue that rather than the simple Jesus died for our sins to either um, atone for God's, the God the Father's anger or pay a debt to Satan, both of which are sort of recycled ancient narratives, I, I don't really think it makes sense when you dig into them. Um, I'd rather sort of approach the idea that Jesus died because Jesus was a revolutionary who wanted liberation for his people. So he stood up in nonviolent resistance to Roman oppressors and the religious leaders who collaborated with them in order to keep uh, sort of power within the Israelite people and to maintain peace. In short, he lived a life of love towards his fellow oppressed Israelite people and wanted to show them a better way. His death was a consequence of oppression and hatred of the powers against that spirit of love and liberation. And for those of you armchair theological scholars out there, this is known as Peter Abelard's moral exemplar theory. We're going to explain that a little bit more later with a heavy dose of liberation theology added in. Yeah. And like, that's a really the, the best, I think most compassionate response to that. But, um, so like, no, anyways, this is a good <laughs> it was like I'm throwing out that baby with the bathwater. Baby That's and bathwater are gone. Bye. <laughs> I'm like, so long, sucker. Um, in a compassionate way. <laughs> okay, and it's a good time to do this because you know Lent is, according to Christian t- tradition, a period of forty days and nights of prayer, fasting, and repentance, where Christians contemplate death and sin. <laughs> And this uh, 40 days starts with Ash Wednesday, 
Um, you may have seen people walking around with black smudges on their forehead. And so that's why there's sort of a cross that gets put on their head um, by ministers during the service. And this period uh, ends with Easter and a celebration of Jesus' resurrection three days after his crucifixion on Good Friday, according to the Gospels in the New Testament. Right. So let's just dive right into the story of Jesus' death. Um, so we're going to be pulling heavily from two great resources, Zealot by Reza Aslan, and also a great documentary, Who Was Jesus, from 2009, which aired on the Discovery Channel, which, so you know, it's super legit. So Jesus has been embarking on three years of ministry, roving around Israel's countryside, challenging the status quo. Some people, especially the religious authorities in Jerusalem, are worried that he's going to start a rebellion. They have this like very tenuous peace with their Roman occupiers. And Jesus probably feels like that has made the religious authorities rich and has seen the poor and oppressed like himself suffering. He's been saying everyone belongs and the last comes first and the first comes last sermon on the Mount. Um, that's a big problem for Rome and the high priest. Yeah, that's right. And during the week of Passover, a Jewish holiday celebrating when God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and literally passed over the Israelite firstborn because of the animal blood on the door frames, which led to the liberation from slavery. So this is a big holiday um, about liberation in Jewish tradition. Uh, Jesus is entering Jerusalem at this time with palm branches being waved uh, by the people. And this was a sign of overcoming oppression. And soon he goes to the temple and is angered by money changers being inside or outside the temple, right, you know, kind of in, in his view, sort of defiling it. So he overturns the tables in anger and this causes a huge scene. The priests and the Romans are alerted to him immediately. And Jesus could have left and stayed alive at that point, but he chooses to stay and preach and baptize in the shadow of the temple of Jerusalem during this week of Passover, which would have had really, it's, it's a very dangerous thing for him to do. And there's a lot of sort of political and sort of power structures at play right there. Yeah. So the priests are worried that Rome could shut down the temple if they sense a disturbance. And Jesus is just out there drawing thousands of people to him. And this obviously like is angering the Roman authorities who just want to keep the peace. They just want that low profile, right? Um, the temple officials are freaked out because Jesus is proclaiming messages of radical change. Caiaphas, the high priest and Pontius Pilate, the local Roman prefect or governor, would have found out about this, but were wary of arresting him in front of the supporters, right? They wanted to arrest himself and avoid riot. So the best thing to do in this situation, they think, is to find someone in his inner circle to betray him. According to the Gospels, Judas sells himself out for a bag of silver in the middle of the night by kissing him, which signals who he is to the Romans, to the Roman authorities. And we, we covered him specifically in a previous episode, which I recommend you go back and listen to. Frankly, it's one of my favorites. Sarah, I swear if you ever betray me to guards with the kiss, I will slap you. <laughs> it's going to be a tongue kiss, though. <laughs> You're just going to slowly come in, and then I get hauled away. I am. 100%. I'll be like, what is, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, religious scholar Reza Aslan says in his book, Zealot, that Jesus is charged with sedition for forbidding the paying of tribute to Rome, citing the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 2. And the concept of a Messiah, which is a word getting thrown around in reference to him, is up until then used as an earthly authority or king of the Israelite people. So Roman authorities are very concerned that Jesus' messianic aspirations are threatening the occupation of Palestine by the Romans. And religious authorities are worried that his zealotry is endangering them. So the Israelite priests are kind of holding this tenuous balance. And in some ways, the people are seeing them as kind of selling out to the Romans. And some people are seeing them as sort of, oh, hey, we're just, we're just trying to be this intermediary and try to keep this peace, right? Uh, and before we get into really any misconceptions that Jesus' death was caused by quote-unquote Jews, which is a very anti-Semitic belief many Christians have used to persecute Jews. Jesus was Jewish, okay? So Jesus was Jewish, so this is not Jesus versus the Jews. Jesus and his apostles were all Jewish. So this is, this is kind of an inner family skirmish about uh, what's the right thing to do next in a country that's completely occupied by a foreign power. Rome is the real Rome is, is the villain here. And only Rome had the authority to execute prisoners, and Roman occupation is making this whole area extremely volatile. It's a, it's a powder keg. They are the very real, tangible enemy here, and there's a lot of internal disagreements among these factions of the Jews on survival versus revolts. And it was Rome that had the power to crucify Jesus, and only Rome. Yeah, so if anything, we should be prejudiced against the Romans. Romans suck, y'all. But you know what? All we do is go over there and eat their tasty, tasty pizza and drink all their Chianti and seem to have a very good relationship with the Romans. It's because, it's because of the Chianti and the pizza. It's because of carbs, carbs and wine. That really is, which cinches the deal for any good relationship. Anyways. It's all that Protestants want. <laughs> <laughs> I can test to that. That's all I want in my life is just more <laughs> carbs, more views. Um, so Pontius Pilate didn't normally hold trials. So it's really odd that he did this in the Gospels. It's debatable. Remember, the Gospels are oral traditions written down nearly a century after Jesus' death, and the facts, quote-unquote, are disputed. Um, Aslan notes that Mark's story of the trial, where Pilate would have like basically let the crowd choose. This is the whole part where he's like, I wash my hands of this. So essentially, he's, he's letting them choose between freeing Jesus, this Jewish prisoner, or a murderer named Barabbas. It's just absurd. Pilate was cruel. He hated Jews and crucified many Jews. Mark and other Christians were trying to move away from Jewish zealotry after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 CE. The audience they were writing towards was now a Gentile one generations after Jesus' death and following the fall of Jerusalem. Aslan talks about this, that like the farther each gospel gets, like historically from that 70 CE time period, the more detached and outlandish Pilate's role in Jesus' death becomes. And this then like has this crazy ripple effect where it later justifies anti-Semitism throughout history. That's absolutely right. And Aslan notes that Jesus' trial would have been very brief with the sole purpose to record charges for which he was being executed. This is why Pilate asks in every gospel account, are you the king of the Jews? 
crucifixion was common and cheap, served as a deterrent, an embarrassment, and was reserved for political crimes such as treason, rebellion, sedition, and banditry. Yeah, and Christians generally state that the sign on the cross, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is mocking him. But Aslan is like, "Mm, maybe that's not a joke, but an accounting of his actual crime in the eyes of the Roman state. And this is also corroborated with the New Testament, as Jesus is crucified next to bandits or seditious people, not thieves. So crucifixion is a horrible death. It's awful. According to a live science article titled uh, How Jesus Died by Tom Metcalf, quote, Roman crucifixions were designed to cause maximum pain for a prolonged period. Victims' feet and wrists were usually nailed to a wooden cross, which would hold them upright while they suffered a slow and agonizing death, often taking several days, the researcher said. So this was done to be a deterrent to future criminals. Yeah. And from what I learned as like a 10-year-old in a Southern Baptist church, they got, they got like real specific real about specific. like how large the nails were, where exactly they went into the wrists, how they like, you know, what the vinegar did to help keep him alive, things like that. Yeah. Oh, it was very vivid and very much about like how we all are at fault and yeah. we all did this to Jesus. and. Indeed. 100%. Whew, it's a lot. It is. It is. It's a, it's a little too much. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of problems with that. We'll get into it. Agreed. Um, so we know from the Gospels that basically only the women were present at his death. The disciples having fled. Fucking cowards. The, yeah, the male disciples were just like, peace. <laughs> the women are like, damn it, always. Having yeah. to stick around and clean it up. Part two, actually. <laughs> I think this comes up again in part two. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. Exactly. We're going to talk more about this in part two. Like, uh, we know from the Gospels that basically only the women were present as death. Disciples just like, they just dipped. They just dipped out. Um, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene probably being the, the ones who washed and prepared his body uh, for the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea is said to have allowed his tomb to be used for Jesus' burial. And from there, we'll turn more to theological reasons for Jesus' death, covering Easter and the theory of resurrection next time. I'm very excited about the resurrection because that's just, there's more from a feminist lens on the resurrection. Yeah, it's also more upbeat, (laughs) right? Um, Okay, so I am very thankful to have found a helpful BBC article entitled Why Did Jesus Die? that really concisely explains the atonement theories for Jesus' death, like why Jesus died, right, from a theological perspective. I'm a Baptist minister, and I can, like, word vomit about this, so kudos to the BBC. So we're introducing these theological perspectives, and atonement theory, like she said, all of these theories are trying to grapple with the question, why did Jesus die? And atonement theory is kind of, like, the most popular and also wasn't the first kind of real theory to ask this question. Oh, like, yeah, substitutionary atonement would be the, but they're all kind of considered atonement theories. Like, like, why did Jesus die? I think that this whole transactional thing is of interest to theologians thinking about, okay, well, why is, how is it possible that a God could die? If you accept, and very early on, Christian doctrine said that Jesus was 100% divine and 100% human at the same time. So then, then we're trying to answer the question, why would 
God die on a cross. So that's, that's the sort of subtext for why did Jesus die? Yeah, I'm really excited to get into like that actual discussion. So that's like, I'm excited to like get this set up so we can talk about it. I know, right? It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun. It is. So let's start with the most, I would say the most prevalent one, the one that we all know that like scarred the shit out of us as children. It is substitutionary atonement, the suffering servant. People who advocate for this theory tend to use the letters in the Hebrews in the New Testament to fill out the imagery of Jesus as a perfect sacrifice or offering to God in order to mend a relationship between us and the angry God figure, right? The pro is that the sacrifice was a common theme in ancient Israelite ritual. The con is that we don't really see that translated into human sacrifice outside of battle. In fact, we see God staying Abraham's hand when he tries to practice human sacrifice on his son in the Old Testament. And here are some quotes from early theologian St. Augustine, who wrote on the theme of sacrifice. Quote, by his death, which is indeed the one and most true sacrifice offered for us, he purged, abolished, and extinguished whatever guilt there was by which the principalities and powers lawfully detained us to pay the penalty. Also, he said, he offered sacrifice for our sins, and where did he find that offering, the pure victim that he would offer, he offered himself, and that he could find no other, barf, I just want to vomit. (laughs) Why? Like, why? Why? I don't, I, I, I hate this. So first of all, it presupposes God is angry. And God is angry. Like the Old Testament God is super angry and jealous and kind of a douche. And he's angry enough to want his son dead and loves the idea of humans as victims. But it like goes beyond that. I mean, first of all, it takes all agency away, I think, from Jesus. Like does, like, does Jesus have a choice? I think it's just so problematic as a cultural narrative. I don't know why anybody truthfully would want to believe in a God who would do that to anyone. Because it's not just that God is doing that to Jesus as a saving measure for all of people. God created this situation. And now God is, what, trying to like, push the blame onto somebody else or like make somebody else the sacrifice so that he can get out of it. Like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't like it. A hundred percent agree. I think, and, and like you said, God is angry. I think, I think God is really angry in the, and we'll get into this later this season in the sort of the texts like Deuteronomy and sort of the writers of Deuteronomy and like judges and Kings. God in some parts of the old Testament is this really angry, vengeful God, right? But even by the time we get to the second half of the, well, I know the books are ordered differently in uh, Judaism versus sort of Christianity, the way that we've ordered our Bibles, but in the Protestant Christian Bible, um, the books that come later, God is very compassionate. God is very engaged. And that God would not like this. <laughs> this is this does not mesh. This is a God has becomes very compassionate. It's almost like humanity has evolved from this very tribalistic, uh, you know, primitive society to okay. Well, we're all together, and we have to understand that we're all uh, we're all in it together, and it's all about love. And so that really doesn't mesh even with what Jesus is preaching with this idea of a uh, very angry, vengeful God that would kill. God's own son. That doesn't make any sense. And 
I think this theory has so many problems. I don't like it. It characterizes God as little more than Zeus playing terrible family games. Greek gods are just awful. I mean, very entertaining, but just awful. And it misses the point of Jesus's life as a strong, compassionate, justice-filled being striving for a better system. It completely neuters his life to think of him as a victim or a sacrifice to something that's outside of his control completely. Like he has no agency. Well, and like n- nobody has any agency in that theory, I don't think. Um, because we're like fully bound, we're fully bound to a situation that God created where we are bound to our sin and Christ is bound to having to atone for that. And like nobody wins in that situation. So there's a close sibling to substitutionary atonement called penal substitution. (laughs) 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 So it's close sibling. Penal substitution, it spells, which spells out that Jesus takes the punishment for humanity's sin when he dies on the cross, but that God, as Jesus, shows his love by taking the punishment on instead of putting it on humans, which is even more ridiculous. Like, so like I get it because it's that kind of like Trinitarian thing where they're all one, but they're all separate kind of deal. So like God is, as Jesus, is also experiencing our pain, but also like So God is like a 14-year-old self-harming goth kid? Like, what's happening here? As a therapist, I just have to say, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, I would would immediately assess and refer God to a cosmic therapist if that that turned out to be the case. And I would not want it to be me because a cosmic teenage God, whoa. This is so bad. Like, this is so bad for so many reasons. I don't want any teens to see this. Like, you, you're fine. Everyone's fine. You're beautiful. Jesus is fine. Like, just don't, no, just run away from this. <laughs> don't listen to Connor Oberst and don't read this. All good rules. <laughs> run, run away. Just run away. Um, and then we have a third, which is satisfaction theory. Anselm of Canterbury, which, like, deep cut, by the way. I mean, I know everybody knows Anselm of Canterbury, but, like, we're getting, we're getting way in the past. We're just dropping it like it's hot. We're like, what's up, 11th century? <laughs> we are. <laughs> he rejected the idea that God deceived the devil through the cross of Christ. God, quite the trickster. Instead, he presents an alternative view, which is often called the satisfaction theory of atonement, saying that Jesus pays the penalty for each individual's sin in order to right or correct the relationship between God and humanity, a relationship that's damaged by sin. Jesus's death is the penalty or like the quote satisfaction for the sin because God demands satisfaction. Sarah, he can't get no satisfaction. He can't. Um... Uh, satisfaction was an idea used in the early church to describe public action, like pilgrimage, charity, that kind of thing, that a Christian might undertake to show that he was grateful for forgiveness. Only <laughs> Jesus can make satisfaction because he is without sin. He- Sarah, 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 can I make satisfaction? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just what it sounds like. It sounds so sexual, right? I- go back to again i i feel like this season is going to be all about what's going to be on sarah's tinder profile <laughs> i just want to make satisfaction 
<laughs> I'm big into I'm big into um, penal atonement and making satisfaction. <laughs> oh my god. Can I just say that there's going to be some like amazing divinity school grad that sees that and is going to be like, oh my God. <laughs> going to be like, boing, oing, oing, oing. Boing, <laughs> But then they're going to think I'm really into it. I'm going to have to be like, oh no, I'm sorry. No, I, it's I. Not it's not, it's not like something I want to actually. Subscribe to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not like chill with it. It's just funny for the it's for kicks it's just for kicks yeah anyways so jesus can only be jesus can only make satisfaction because he's without sin he is sinless because he is the incarnation god become man the theory is thought out by anselm in his work kurdu homo or why god became man kurdu homo that's a uh, latin you can also pronounce it Curdus Homo. Which <laughs> that's is, how we say it in my hometown. <laughs> yeah, that's the preferred nomenclature. Um okay. This this whole satisfaction theory, whatever. It's recycled substitutionary atonement. It is also the next step in the evolution of the ransom theory, <laughs> which okay, I feel like we're getting to the like the old west version of this. <laughs> like Yeehaw! We got you up here for a ransom. <laughs> the next step in the evolution of this whole nonsense is this ridiculous ransom theory, which states that Jesus' death was paid as a ransom to Satan to trick him, which Greek writer Origen came up with. And Gregory the Great ran with saying, the bait tips in order that the hook may wound. Our Lord before, when coming for the redemption of humanity, made a kind of hook of himself for the death of the evil. <laughs> okay, and for the death of the devil, sorry. And what the fuck is this? It's like a cosmic practical joke on Satan. If Satan isn't as powerful as God, like the church says, then this isn't even necessary. Like, this is so dumb. So no, just no, next, next, next. <laughs> like Ariana Grande. Thank you, next. <laughs> So, in a, like, a less-ish shitty category, we have Christus victory, or Jesus defeating death. Um, the BBC talks about this. They say, the New Testament frequently describes Jesus' death and resurrection as a victory over evil and sin as represented by the devil. Gustav Alun wrote of the idea of Christus victor, saying... Its central theme is the idea of atonement as a divine conflict and victory. Christ, Christus Victor, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the, quote, tyrants under which mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him God reconciles the world to himself. So in him, in his own God self, reconciles the world to his own God self. Um, okay, so I'm of two minds of this right now. One is that I'm really ready for uh, Game of Thrones to come back. And, <laughs> and I think when this is released, uh, Game of Thrones will be getting ready to drop or the first episode is dropping. And so I think you'll, you'll understand that this whole, like, you know, epic, like, victory over evil like there's a really uh, like sense of awesomeness to that where you kind of want your Jon Snows and your Daenerys Targaryens to just really 
the Cersei and the White Walkers, right? You just, and I love that. I love that. It's, there's a sense of epicness to it, right? If you're, if you're going to kind of write this down in a story form, but okay. But that's, that's the side of me that likes the adventure and the stories, but this still feels to me, theological side of Lara too close to the ransom theory and this needing to trick Satan. Also death and evil didn't magically stop when Jesus died, right? Genocide, war, 21st century immigration policy, just to name a few. I I don't really buy it that it just kind of boom stopped with this death and resurrection thing. Yeah. I mean like apart from like the glaringly obvious problem that all these narratives have that there is, one version of evil that i mean like there are like long-standing agreements on what evil is but by and large a lot of this is like in flux with the cultural narrative right and so like christ as the victor how, how like how does that even work like there isn't an endpoint, right it's just a constant it's just constant a constant rehashing a constant like reevaluating and reorganizing these theories into the context of the current world. And so like, I just, I'm just, I'm just kind of done. I'm just kind of done with all these, like. I agree. Without a Game of Thrones sort of uh, framework to this, where like Jon Snow just keeps coming back to defeat evil. I can't, I can't, I, I don't really, it doesn't, I don't really buy it. So here's the one I like. Uh, this is the moral exemplar theory. Basically, Jesus's love is emphasized and expressed through both Jesus' life and death. This demonstration of love in turn moves us as people to repent or turn away from evil doings and reunites us with God. Peter Abelard, who lived from about 1079 to 1142, is associated with this theory. He wrote, quote, the son of God took our nature and in it took upon himself to teach us both word and example, even to the point of death, thus binding us to himself through love. Our redemption through the suffering of Christ is that deeper love within us, which not only frees us from slavery to sin, but also secures for us the true liberty of the children of God in order that we might do all things out of love rather than out of fear, Love for him that has shown us such grace that no greater can be found. I mean, I, I still just don't like it. It still suggests that Jesus's death was a necessity. I think that's super problematic. And, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to approach this from a, like a, a feminist lens. And what's weird about this particular question of the like, why did Jesus die? Was it necessary? Is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of these theories that, we've just talked about are very old, like they're not modern theories. And they're written in a context where there was a presumption that there was an objective right and an objective wrong. And we now live in a context where it's more about the individual experience, right? And so when feminism comes into the philosophy picture, they're, they're just like speaking to a very different kind of culture than say Anselm was in the 11th century. And I think because of that, they don't really like target the question of why Jesus died. They're not trying to answer the why of Jesus dying. It's just accepted that that happened. That's the narrative. And now we have to understand that narrative in a context that can be, you know, 
redeeming or um, helpful or beneficial to us as we live now. And I'm, I want to talk more about feminist theology in our next episode where we talk more about redemption because that's what they really like hone in on and focus on. And it's like beautiful and I love it. But um, one of the reasons why I became agnostic was because it's, it's this focus on the suffering, right? What I don't love what this narrative has become for women because this narrative of the, of like this deified martyr has been used to keep women in abusive situations that like, if you just keep loving them enough, if you just keep um, offering kindness and whatever to your abuser, they will eventually like come to understand your love and you won't be abused anymore. That just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I think that totally makes sense. Uh, especially as a therapist, I, I completely get that. As a therapist and a minister, both. I've seen bad theology, you know, be very difficult <laughs> for people. I think I like this theory because it emphasizes Jesus' life as being more important than Jesus' death. And it's not like this, this theory over the others, his death is not some chess piece in a match where Jesus had no choice, right? Jesus had free will. Jesus was, knew what Jesus was doing whenever he walks into Jerusalem and says, look, I'm here. I'm going to do what I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to overturn these tables I am completely in control of my own autonomy and I know, I know what I'm trying to do here and that his death is in line with his life um, because of his conviction of love and liberty for his people. And I like that because that's a very different scenario than the cycle of power and abuse that happens with women who live their lives entirely trying to tamp down um, a sense of, uh, I guess, when the next, it's, it's all about sort of placating the cycle of abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, the sense of, you know, uh, a, something that I use a lot that I, that I really, I've researched I really like a lot is, is something called a, a, the power and control wheel. And it sort of shows all the different ways that men uh, abusive men and toxic masculinity keep women in an abusive relationship. So through economics, through use of their children, through uh, use of violence, isolation, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things, right? That's a very different scenario than what Jesus is doing, who is very much in control of his actions. And so I very much agree that the theology that you subscribe to will heavily, heavily influence the view of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, and what kind of relationship you should be in and what even like a Christian relationship looks like, right? So, so if you subscribe to one where you're like, Jesus had full agency, Jesus knew what Jesus was doing, and life and death are, Jesus' life and death are completely in line, with someone who was a revolutionary radical, then you're not going to be like one person in the relationship should be subservient. Substitutionary atonement kind of theology, right? Right. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, like, I think that issue of agency is super important. And that's something that is largely left out of any of these narratives, all of these narratives, because 
that's just such a huge piece of it. He chose this. And and then like he chose this and obviously like women in abusive situations presumably don't choose it, right? I would argue that the last narrative is the exception. In the last narrative, Jesus is not locked into death, right? That's what I'm saying. Like he has agency. Right. He has agency in that. Yeah. 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 But I don't view Jesus' death as necessary. I view it as a consequence of Jesus' ministry in a volatile time. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus hadn't died, I would hope that we would all, well, I say we would all, I say people in the Christian church would still be followers of Jesus because Jesus said, hey, activism is important and we have to stand up for our people. And if Jesus had lived to be 90 and died a natural death, I would hope that we still follow Jesus. I love you. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's like the best take I've ever heard on this whole debacle. It's good. Oh. It's good. I like it. That's sweet, Sarah. I mean, I'm not going to be a Christian now, but. No, but I, <laughs> I love you. I love you. Oh. Oh, God, I love you. All right. Um, good talk. Like that, I feel. I feel like that was really good. Like enlightening. Yeah, I did too. I feel like our shared frustration is the sense of atonement theories falling really short of what of Jesus' intention. Uh, I think that we discussed this kind of. I think we kind of came to this sort of shared understanding of. I know I am, and I feel like you are too. This sense of frustration that atonement theories fall short of Jesus' life and intent. That Jesus' mission was incredibly important, living in Roman-occupied Jerusalem and trying to make real change. And I felt like atonement theories fall really short. I do like the moral exemplar because it elevates his life to or greater than the importance of his death. And Jesus has ultimate agency in this. Jesus knew what he was doing. And if people put Jesus' death above Jesus' life, you're just not getting it. I just feel like you're not getting it. I Yeah. It's not about the martyrdom. No, it's a consequence of like I I feel like it's it's a it's it shows how committed Jesus was to the cause mm-hmm. of what he was doing and how shitty people were at the time, but it's not like he had to die. All right. So hey y'all. Okay, so what we are really wanting so bad so bad is for you to share your favorite episode with a friend via social media are you on the instagrams take a picture are you on the twitters send a link are you on the facebook picture or link i don't care whatever uh share your favorite episode with the friend or with all of your friends all your followers show show your love for bible bitches what is your favorite episode share it and tag us. Please tag us. <laughs> um, well, yes, you can tag us on uh, Twitter at Bible Bitches. Uh, you can also tag us. Uh, we have a fan page on Facebook that's also Bible Bitches. Yeah, yeah. And also, please, you know, find us at SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. We would love for you guys to um, check us out there, like us, comment on the pages. Um, we're super excited about it. You can also, of course, if you'd like to uh, donate to our Patreon page, uh, we are always we're always just trying to get a little bit more funding so that we can give you guys cooler swag and yeah, better audio quality. 
patreon.com slash bible, bible bitches podcast. podcast yeah yeah so patreon bible bitch yeah no. yeah um also we want to give a huge shout out to engaged gays for hosting our mm-hmm. podcast and uh we love you yo eves for be for for allowing us to use your music for the intro and the outro and of course last but never least Aaron Doodles um, Aaron who does our artwork we love you and we thank you so much for putting up with all of our nonsense and particularities about about our uh, logo he even loves our nonsense <laughs> He's that's, how, that's how amazing he is he is I also heard that uh, Miss Eves uh, at Yo Eves on, t- on Twitter is gonna have a new music video soon and I'm very excited to see it all right you guys thank you so much for listening we love you Um, yeah and uh, seriously if there's anything if if you have any questions if there are any topics you want us to discuss we'd be happy to just like um add us on twitter or um comment on our facebook page and we'll be back next time with part two uh why was jesus resurrected (laughs) probably just for kicks (laughs) bye you guys bye